Thank you. Thank you for um, allowing me to come and talk to you a bit today. Feels right, actually. I joined Royal Mail. I've kind of forgotten about the story a little bit. It was about 10 years ago this Christmas where uh, we found out, uh, all of us that worked for CityLink at the time, that we'd lost our job through BBC News. So that was joyous. Um, as you're tucking into your Christmas turkey and your missus looks at you and goes, <laughs> do we need to take this back? <laughs> no, um, not ideal. But actually, what a lesson in being future, uh, future ready. Because part of the downfall of CityLink actually was it didn't adjust for the future. Um, it didn't account for the changes that were happening around it. It stuck to its guns. It was quite a controlled business, but thought it was really entrepreneurial. And for a while it was quite successful, but it dined out on that success for far too long. And like all adverse experiences, I guess that's what you can bring through into your current roles. Royal Mail, of course, is a legacy organisation. Everybody knows Royal Mail, right? The photo on your left was taken last week. Um, <laughs> Uh, clearly it wasn't, it was a week before, it's not crazy. But the reality is at Royal Mail, we've got a real challenge when it comes to change. Because the task that we've got as part of the infrastructure of the UK is to change absolutely everything, whilst staying exactly the same. Because we're a regulated business, we're a business that has to deliver to all of your houses six days a week. Uh, delivering the letters and the parcels under what's called the universal service obligation. And that's a real privilege. That gives us a network or forces us to have a network that means we have to cover the UK. Single price, um, one price goes anywhere pricing that doesn't exploit uh, the people that can't afford to use postal services and so on and so forth. But that also means that Royal Mail might carry, might carry the notion of not being particularly innovative. Well, I'll just give you a little timeline. And there is people in the room, I will say, that were here at the beginning when Royal Mail opened, right? Who, who actually worked there on day one. They didn't really. Sorry, Mike, wherever you are. Yes. <laughs> so, look, way back in 1516, Henry VIII's knight, Brian Chook, the first master of posts, uh, establishes the key postal towns across um, the country and builds a formal postal network, first in the world. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, I've skipped a bit, right? So I have jumped uh, a little bit because otherwise we'd be here all day over the 500 odd years of history. Uh, 1711, the Post Office Act paves the way for a unified postal service across Scotland, England and Wales. That might not sound very innovative, but again, one of the first in the world. Um, Ireland then joined in 1808, so a little bit of time passed again. So jumping ahead a bit, 1840, the world's first adhesive postal stamp, the Penny Black, is launched. Queen Victoria appears on it, 68 million are used in the first year. Now hold that thought a minute, 68 million. This was innovative. Nobody had done this before. This was groundbreaking technology of the time. 1968, first and second class letter services are introduced. Again, the first in the world. It's good, right? 1992, Royal Mail, uh, Royal Mail Parcels sorry, is rebranded as Parcel Force. Uh, huge investment. Why was that? That was to account for the adjustment in the way that people were using postal services, starting to send goods, predominantly to businesses, um, around the country. Introducing online tracking, the construction of national and international sorting hubs. This sounds really, really boring nowadays, doesn't it? But back then, that was innovative. 2006, online posted launches, uh, allowing you, the general public, to pay 
uh, and download and print your labels and buy postage from us. This is another huge challenge that we come up with um, being working for Royal Mail, is many people still think we're the post office. Of course, we're not. We're not the post office. The post office, for many, many years, we were part of the same organisation, of course we are. But today, for us, the post office is a retail organisation that happens to sell some of our services. 2014, Royal Mail Tract 24 and 48 is launched, introducing the tracking of parcels across the UK. Now, this is not a uh, product that is sold under our universal service obligation. These products were designed, in fact, my job at Royal Mail largely was to write the strategy um, for those, those products and bring them to market. It now makes up well over half of our parcel volumes and over half of our revenue. And just this year and last year, uh, two new mega hubs are opened, uh, one in the Northwest, one in the Midlands, um, capable of processing up to 150,000 items an hour. Now, for all of you that um, uh, have got no context of what that is, it's a lot, right? A lot. Uh, by far and away the biggest processing capacity of any uh, delivery company in the world. So it's amazing, and it continues for a company that is not innovative. This is all of the stuff that we do all of the time and we've got carried on. And these are continual improvements, which is there designed with our customers' customers in mind. Third box thinking, Phil, drives a lot of what we think about what we do. And uh, clearly I'm not expecting you to read any of this. The point being that that change is absolutely constant. All WAST staying exactly the same, which is quite difficult. But the trouble is the world keeps turning, right? 15 years ago, we were delivering 20 billion letters, 20 billion. Today, it's about 7 billion. You're just not sending enough. So <laughs> if you could sort that out, that would be great. But the reality is our infrastructure has had to stay the same to deliver considerably less than we do today. And of course, we all know the boom in e-commerce, boosted by COVID, of course, but it's been coming for a long, long time before that. We've had to adapt. So our letters that we delivered nice and went through post boxes, uh, of course, have become parcels, much bigger parcels. And that proves a real, real challenge. Globalisation, of course, the world has got much, much smaller in many ways. And also it's got quite a lot bigger as we exited the EU. But that brings more and more challenges, doesn't it? How do we maintain the same level of service across the world that we do in the UK? And that's the same for all of us, crossing those boundaries that they exist. So uh, a little bit of interaction. Now, I know some of you might have seen something similar to this uh, before in talks I've done, but um, you might get close. How long do you think it took the stamp to get to 100 million users? Go on in. Two. Two. Give that man a prize. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that. Right. I'm sticking with you. How long do you think it took the mobile phone, the ubiquitous mobile phone, to get to 100 million users? Six months. Six months, 10 years, bit of a range. It's like my timeline earlier. 15 years. I know, right? Facebook. How long did it take Facebook to get to 100 million users? A week, a week. Four years. So you can see the pace of technology increasing. 
Phil spoke about uh, AI at the top, so ChatGPT. How long did it take ChatGPT to get to 100 million users? Two months. Clearly, this is a challenge for us, right? So, uh, I'm not here, this talk isn't about AI, this talk is about being future ready, but clearly we need to be um, incredibly cognizant of the speed of which technology will continue to develop. But, just a little reminder, if you hadn't quite clocked it, uninvinitive, that's not even a word, innovative, uninnovative Royal Mail, still second fastest in terms of speed of adoption. God knows what this lot are doing. They haven't got a clue, have they, right? Old uh, mobile phone manufacturers, Apple, never heard of them. Facebook, pff, no idea what they're doing, clearly. Um, the reality is, though, the reality is, and I think this is important for all of us, we talk about innovation, and Cathy mentioned it, that companies like Apple, like Netflix, and we hold these companies up as shining beacons of innovation. But for the majority of us, the majority of us, we can't always be at the bleeding edge of innovation, can we? It really is reserved for the handful. And actually, sometimes being first to market, trying to get those inflated valuations, actually the reality is there is real long-term value in placing your bets a bit more wisely, ensuring sustainability for the future. Now, what does that mean in the context of OML? Well, actually, um, we don't profess, despite what I just said, uh, obviously about the amazing um, invention that was the stamp uh, and all of the other technology advancements that we make, we don't profess to be first to market with most. It is our strategy in many ways to be a fast follower, and sometimes a slow follower. And why is that? Because we've got to protect the core of what we do and what we do very, very well. But we have our challenges. <clears throat> Look, we all know uh, about COVID. But what did that mean for Royal Mail? Well, we had to carry on. That actually in many ways showed Royal Mail at its best. We had to stand up a network literally within a couple of days to deliver, collect and deliver all of the test kits that we all relied on to try and keep ourselves and our families safe. We had to obviously send all of our postmen and women, dead easy for us sitting in offices and working from home, but actually our frontline people out there. Uh, Brexit, huge challenge. I spoke a moment ago about globalisation, but Brexit for us, of course, what do we do about customs? How do we handle all of that traffic? Our international market just dropped off a cliff almost overnight. Our customers were coming to us saying, well, what's going on with Brexit? Well, we don't know. We don't have a clue. Now, this stamps up here isn't to represent um, stamps in the context I've already spoke about. Very sadly, our queen passed away not that long ago. The second phone call I got was, we've got to get the stamps out of circulation. Now, thankfully, we agreed with the palace we didn't have to do that so quickly. It was a major change for Royal Mail when your figurehead is no longer about. <clears throat> January last year, we were hit uh, by a Russian organisation, a cyber attack in our international um, customs organisation, something that we can all be exposed to. Turns out it was a bit of a malware attachment on an email. Thankfully, it was in quite an isolated system, but it took down all of our customs processing. We had to rebuild our international network within a matter of months. Now, months might sound a long time. One of our major competitors experienced this a few years ago, and it took them about four years to rebuild a similar-sized operation. It took us months. And this time last year, Phil mentioned it, we had some strikes. Um, it was really challenging. Why did we have these strikes? Well, fundamentally at its core, because 100,000 or so postmen and women 
need to change what they do day in, day out to adapt to the way the world is changing around us. Now, to ask 100,000 or so people to say, I know you've been doing this for about 500 years, but actually now what we need you to do is start two or three hours later in the day. By the way, that means you can't pick your kids up from school anymore or see your grandkids in the afternoon or work the second job or so on and so forth. We're going to ask you to change your lives fundamentally. Well, we don't want to, so we're going to go on strike. And you understand that? Of course, there was some national, a national picture around industrial action at the time, probably just because you're having an event, Phil, I'd imagine. Um, so, but there was a national picture. There was a, there was a movement, as we know, by all of the unions to try and destabilise um, parts of the, the UK economy. But the reality is, for all now, this was a change process that obviously we could not manage successfully enough at the time because we didn't turn up for work for 18 days. I say we, our, our frontline workers. But you understand why. And I think it's exactly the point that you were making, Cathy. Are these people on the journey with you? They weren't. Logically, they got it. Logically, they got it. But the reality was that change was too much for them. We're through that now, thankfully. We're turning up. We're, uh, we're, we're delivering your Christmas for you. And um, please do send Christmas cards again. I know we didn't do much for them last year, but if you could do it again, that would be great. Uh, these are all very challenging macro events in many cases that affect an infrastructure business, that affect the people that work within it. And in the context of sales, and in the context of the last however many hundreds of years we've been around, uh, what I wanted to share with you really is how do we handle that change from a salesperson's point of view? We've learned that some things never ever change. They just don't change over that time. What if, actually what if, we really did put customers at the heart of what we do. Now, customers is a strange term, isn't it? Because we've got two sets of customers in uh, Royal Mail. The majority and all of the work that uh, my team do amazingly is work with businesses to sell parcel, predominantly parcel services and letter services to them. These businesses, like the businesses you work for, pay our bills, pay our wages and so on. You are our customers. But the people who were in the bottom left photo a moment ago, the people that are out there, they see their customers as you as the private individuals, the people who they put their post through your front doors. And this is difficult because you're not quite paying us. And so we have to find a way to balance both of those needs, our customers and our customers' customers. How do we do that? Well, this was our four-step um, approach. The first thing, and this was five years ago, really, we identified this, is our hedgehog concept. Now, uh, this is um, work uh, blatantly ripped off from Jim Collins, the book Good to Great. Familiar with it? Yeah, so you've read it, you'll probably be familiar with the hedgehog concept. I won't do the full story uh, if, you're, if you're not. Um, uh, just read the book. But the point being, um, the hedgehog does one thing incredibly well in virtually most situations. Any idea what that one thing is? If a hedgehog's under attack, what would it do? Curl up. Curl up. If a hedgehog's scared, what would it do? Curl up. If a hedgehog wants to go on the attack, what does it do? Right, you get the point, right? The one thing that a hedgehog can do that ensures as much success as possible. So, the concept being, what's the one thing that we, in sales, can do? Now, the reason I emphasise the point in sales is because we're a huge organisation. Our operation will let customers down at some point. 
It will. Our customer services will let customers down. It won't deliver the type of service that is expected at some point. So what can we do in sales? Well, we have to be able to look after the customer better than anybody else. Now, that doesn't mean giving money away. That doesn't mean just agreeing with the customer. This is all about the relationship. So we operate in a really competitive environment in, in the parcels land. So we've gone from having a monopoly on letters to competing against the likes of Every or UPS or FedEx or Yodel or whoever else. And broadly, what we do is the same in concept. Pick something up, we deliver it. Broadly, we're about the same price. Sometimes we're a bit cheaper, sometimes a bit more expensive. So the difference really is our people. It's that relationship that genuinely makes a difference. Is it a cliche? You could think so, but it's our reality. So with that in mind, looking after the customer better than anybody else. But we also need to strength test our resilience. Um, that might sound a bit odd, but you know, just the five examples that I put up there. Uh, it's been a really tough couple of years. COVID was tough for all of us for a myriad of reasons. Our toughness just then carried on with a cyber attack and strikes. It has been really hard. Our people are knackered. They've been battered. They've been shouted at by customers. They've got pressure coming internally. Well, you've still got to do the numbers. You've still got to do the job. That resilience is really, really key. So what do we have? Um, we have a resilience test, and we work this in two ways. We do it as a leadership team. That's the point. We might go off into a darkened room, and we'll test it, and we'll assess it. But actually, we also run it um, uh, uh, publicly as well. So whether it's part of meeting activity and so on. So people can understand where they are on that resilience journey. And look, this is an open resource. We'll, we'll share it if you want it. And I know some of the people in the room will have seen it. But what is it? So it's a process to strength test the sales uh, organization's resilience um, during those times of disruption. Now, like a lot of things, it makes sense to fix the roof whilst the sun is shining. But sometimes you don't get the chance to do that, do you? Sometimes you've got to do these things on the fly. Uh, it's based on research carried out by Cambridge University, so this, is, okay, this isn't something we've made up. Uh, just blatantly stolen it, of course. Um, but we use it within the leadership team um, to, to continually assess it. It's really simple to do. It's a 10-question survey that covers critical areas of the sales operation, and it's a self-rating, but it exposes the thinking. So do it. If you know you're going to come up to periods of change, if you don't have the luxury of a full change management program, which a lot of organisations don't, unfortunately, it's really worth doing. But also understand the team's motivations. Now, this might sound um, uh, obvious in some ways, but conduct a motivational need survey. Well, OK, fine. What is motivating your salespeople? Popular belief is that salespeople are coin-operated, of course. They'll uh, respond to commission and bonuses and so on. I don't think that's the case. Not really. Of course, it does make a bit of a difference. But at their core, if we've got the right people, they're motivated by doing a good job. But what's really um, uh, important and I don't think unique, um, certainly to Royal Mail, is we've got four different generations in the workplace for the first time. Four different generations. All of us probably will have. And those generations have got very different needs. They've got different motivators. So, for example, you might make the assumption that your younger salespeople early in their careers or just coming off the apprenticeship or so on would be more hungry for that commission. They'd take that lower base salary. 
um, because then they can go for the big earnings. I'd rather have a higher potential earning and a lower base salary. But actually, what can't young people get today? Mortgages. So, do you know what, boss? I'd rather have a slightly higher base salary and lower total potential earnings because that suits where I am in my life. Total flip reverse to what could be popular thinking. So they're likely going to have different motivations and um, maybe, maybe as I've demonstrated, your perceptions are probably wrong. Who knows? So what was that for us? It was a 30-question survey covering the critical areas of motivation. It wasn't anonymous. Now, we do corporate surveys all of the time and we say, don't worry, you can slag us off as much as you want because nobody will ever know it's you. Um, I didn't want that. What I wanted was to be able to go back to people and understand what was underneath their comments because that was re really mattered. My experience, and I'm sure yours is as well, when people are filling out corporate surveys and so on, they'll think of a scenario or a particular time and you'll get an, an anecdote. You can't do much with that information, not all the time. So um, hopefully that gave us some uh, great results. By the way, when we did this last, this was in the middle of those strikes I was talking about. So this was us at our worst. Um, so we asked the questions we didn't want the answers to. So this isn't a tick box exercise to say, look how much people love working here. This is, we want to know what's going on. It gave us over three and a half thousand pieces of data, which we used our clever team to analyze and come up with part of the solution. And then what if, what if, and this is, I think, hopefully the point that you're making, uh, Cathy, is we let them lead the change. Now, they might not actually feel like this. Uh, we are currently running um, a, a program, a restructure, for want of a better word, that's been running for about a year. The difference is we're doing it out in the open. It's called Project Smoke Jumper. If we have a drink later, I'll tell you why. Um, but we're doing it out in the open. And about... Uh, 30 to 40 percent of our frontline team, that's about 100 people, um, have been involved in designing that structure from the beginning. We've got some really bright people that have been through their masters in leadership or their level six apprentices or they're just subject matter expert and we brought them together to get them to come up with how we should best look after our customers. And it won't be perfect because it never is. And that is one of the other key uh, takeaways or learnings for me is quite often as organisations you go into these change programmes thinking there's an end point. When does it stop? It doesn't stop, does it? It just carries on, it continues to evolve. There might be some milestones, but there is no real end point. So what were the results for us? Well, in terms of recovering from our strike action, we recovered 45% quicker than we predicted. Uh, just to put some numbers around it, um, we lost a couple of hundred million quid's worth of revenue um, through, through the strike period. We've won, recontracted the very vast majority of that back. That's great news. We've seen increased accountability. So what we've got out of all of those people that were involved in that Project Smoke Jumper case, uh, not all of them, that would be um, an exaggeration, the majority of them is when there's people within their team saying, well, why are we doing this? We've got groups of advocates who go, well, I was there, I remember those conversations, I know why we're doing this. Rather than it just being me on an all-hands call or on a stage like this telling people why they're doing it. 
they were involved in it. We've had minimal staff turnover. Actually, um, I'll be brutally honest, that's more of a problem at Royal Mail. People don't go, um, ever. <laughs> really. Um, but, uh, but the reality is, given the level of change that we had, given the impact, particularly for the sales team, on their earnings, because they haven't been able to earn in the same way for the last couple of years, we've had very minimal turnover. Our corporate survey did show, for the sales team in particular, we increased our trust. Now, again, your belief levels in those types of corporate surveys where they are anonymous, who knows? But as a metric that's rolled out across the business, the sales team uh, did get the highest trust scores in the organisation. We've developed, we've deployed more of those technology changes that we've seen. Uh, our pipeline is stronger than it has been for years. It's phenomenal. Um, it really, really is. We've seen more product improvements. And given the fact that we didn't bother turning up for work for 18 days uh, at the most important time for most of our customers last year, and um, the, uh, the lag effect of that strike has been delivery quality, which isn't as good as we would like it. Uh, we've been able to put higher than uh, average rate increases um, in the highest rate increases than we've been able to see. Now, I'm conscious of saying that I'm in a group of salespeople and uh, uh, potentially also a group of customers as well. This isn't price gouging. We weren't able to put increases in whilst we were going through that strike period. But to have a group of salespeople who, in the face of not being the best company that we could have been for the last couple of years, to go out and land those price increases with confidence, showing their resilience, yeah, of course we had some noise, I think is testament to them and what they've delivered. So, in short, um, change, change management, the processes we go through are really, really difficult. For me, being aligned across that common goal, that full understanding of where you are. Now, not everybody's going to be aligned. Um, but placing customers at the heart of it, genuinely at the heart of it, and ensuring that your people can lead the change does lead to great results. Thank you very much. Oh, no, not thank you very much. I've got a quote. <laughs> um, I like this. Phil, uh, Phil and Steve have seen me put this up a couple of times. When I'm challenging the team at Wormau, so that piece around, what was your level three, Cathy? What was your level three in your emergent leadership software? Controlling. Uh, software? Uh, controlling. That's where we are as Wormau. Compliance, control, process, doing the same thing, same way, day in, day out. The illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn and relearn. And this arguably is our biggest challenge uh, at Wormau. Now it's thank you. Yeah. Right. I'm sure we've got some questions for John. Has anyone got a question you'd like to pose John? <laughs> Stunned silence. Steve. Are you allowed to ask a question? I'm not sure. Oh, Steve. <laughs> Steve, Steve Gaskell, Consalia. Hi, John. When you're looking at future ready, maybe two questions in terms of carbon zero and AI and how you get that message to your sales team and how they get that into the hearts and the minds of your customers. Yeah. How do you gear up for those conversations? So if I could take the first one, carbon zero, actually, we're in a really privileged position in carbon zero. So um, this might sound obvious when you see it or when I say it, sorry. But the very vast majority of our competitors are running around in big vans delivering parcels. If they're lucky, maybe every four or five houses. The very vast majority of what we do 
uh, is delivered on foot. And uh, so our mileage is very, very low. Uh, not least as well, we've got the largest electric fleet of any company in the UK. We've invested quite heavily in that. Any of our new buildings are all carbon neutral and so on. So what that means is that we're about half of the emissions to deliver a parcel or an item than any of our competitors. So we are fortuitously, and arguably not wholly planned, just ahead of the game. I think the difference though, Ben, Steve, is that we just did that and never really spoke about it. As um, the, the green agenda has become more in the public uh, awareness, and as businesses, particularly large businesses, are making genuine decisions on it, and we're seeing, I'm sure we're all seeing it in the tenders uh, that you see receive, or the RFPs actually, well, what is your, um, uh, your, your carbon standards? Um, uh, that we are, uh, customers are, truly deciding on that, whether we get to come to the party or not. So that's become a really core cool part of our proposition. So that was quite, quite easy. As far as AI goes, look, I think we've probably got the same challenge as everybody else. And I think we're probably going to speak a bit more about AI and, and its impacts in, in the future. We are, we're about to embark on another major change program. So we've got a, an outdated CRM uh, program at the moment across raw mail and parcel for so I'm responsible for both but for sake of context two very different companies uh, two very different systems different pricing different CRMs different networks they are two different organizations um, so we are uh, unifying that CRM system and a big part of that is leveraging the the native AI technology that's being built into the more sophisticated and, and uh, leading CRM systems now for me, the challenge is less about the AI, it's more about getting our people to accept and adapt to that change because back to that controlling piece, we've got an awful long tenure in Royal Mail, we've got an awful lot of experience in Royal Mail, which means we've got an awful lot of people who know exactly what they're doing day in, day out, and all of a sudden are going to have to, with the help or support of AI, change everything that they do and phone a different customer or send an email in a different way or react to the marketing in a different way. We are uh, fortunate enough to have a large change management, externally supported change management program through that and bringing in change champions who will exist within the, uh, the Royal Mail sales force to help navigate that. We try not to scare the horses too much and say this is all about AI and of course lots of, um, uh, I don't know, uh, I suppose uninitiated or so, the robots are coming and so on, but actually, like any good tools, this is a huge support thing. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a challenge. It's mindset, it's trying not to scare the people and trying to explain where the benefits are for them and allowing them to lead that change. Forward.